Welcome to the Uncomfortable Truth Podcast, hosted by the rock star of consulting, Alan Weiss. Be prepared to have your beliefs challenged and your behaviors questioned. I want to welcome Clark Hoyt to the Uncomfortable Truth. Clark's been a reporter and editor, a Washington bureau chief, corporate news executive, and news ombudsman during a journalism career that started more than a half century ago. And in 1968, at the Ledger in Lakeland, Florida, his first assignment was to cover a Ku Klux Klan turkey shoot. The majority of his 38-year career was at Knight Ritter, the nation's second-largest newspaper company, until its acquisition by McClatchy in 2006. From 93 to 99, he was Knight Ritter's vice president of news and the company's chief news editor, a chief news officer. Uh, During this period, uh, Knight Ritter was alone among major news organizations, producing coverage calling into question the stated basis for the U.S. invasion of Iran in 2003. In 73, Clark shared the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting with Robert S. Boyd for their coverage of Democratic vice presidential nominee Thomas Eagleton's history of treatment for severe depression. In 2004, Hoyt received the John S. Knight Gold Medal, Knight Ritter's highest employee award. He's a member and former president of the Gridiron Club, a past director of the Foundation of the American Society of Newspaper Editors, and a former chairman of the National Press Foundation. He currently serves on the board of the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, based at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. After uh, leaving Knight Ritter, Clark was public editor or ombudsman for the New York Times from 2007 to 2010. He's a graduate of Columbia College, retired from Bloomberg in 2015, and he lives in Great Falls, Virginia with his wife, Linda Kaus, who's a founding editor of USA Today and who retired as deputy managing editor in 2015 after 32 years with the newspaper. Clark, I could go on, but I don't have time. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you, Alan. It's good to be here. Thank you. I want to uh, start with a piece here written by Alan Goldstein, uh, a special opinion piece to the Desert Sun earlier this year. And the title of the opinion piece is, What If We Lose the Newspaper? Reflections on the Viral Madness Tearing America Apart. I'm going to read a couple of excerpts. I'd like to get your opinion. Alan says, I'm old enough to remember an America that was contentious, divided, even angry at times, but we always knew we all lived in the same place. Those days are gone. It's something we took for granted, something that's nearly vanished without our noticing, and that's the daily newspaper. Our world used to appear on the front porch every morning. We'd meet the world in our bathrobes. We'd gain a harvest of dispatches from every corner of the globe. They would cover different stories, argue different angles, but we all knew that the Daily Planet, meaning the newspaper from Superman, was in this planet. The newspaper was a guidebook, a, uni- a user's manual that bound together the community. People for social proof said, I saw it in the newspaper. Finally, he says, old-style journalists were not angels. They had prejudices, ignorance, and blind spots, just like the rest of us. But they had a code, print the truth. They often failed to meet that standard. They're humans, and humans are fallible. But their lodestar never went away. They knew what they were supposed to do, and so did we. Our view of the world stood on that solid ground. Now they're nearly gone, and the world has changed to quicksand. I think a viral madness is tearing America apart. Perhaps a newspaper is the vaccine. What do you think about that? I agree that the loss of newspapers has contributed greatly to the polarization of our society and the fact that we don't really have a shared set of facts to argue over anymore. Uh, the business model for newspapers collapsed. It was advertising. 
uh, and as uh, technology created new forms of media and uh, people gravitated to that, advertising followed and newspapers uh, suffered the results. I don't know that there is a short-term solution for it. There are lots of um, uh, hopeful shoots out there, efforts to recreate. I think that the, by the way, Alan, I think that the crisis is particularly acute at the local level. We, we do have still very vibrant national uh, newspapers in uh, outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it's at the local level that news is disappearing and therefore coverage of things like school boards, uh, uh, local court systems, county commissions, city commissions, that's disappearing. And with that uh, comes a, a, a kind of a melting away of community. Uh, tell me something. There's a school of thought that I've often subscribed to that says that someday there'll be three newspapers. There'll be the New York Times, um, the Wall Street Journal, and USA Today, and they'll put out local editions for Denver and Phoenix and, and Peoria and so on, uh, perhaps not for very small towns, but it's going to be that kind of conglomerate approach. Do you feel that that's true? Uh, you know, Sinatra sings a song called The Point of No Return, uh, and airplane pilots have something, The Point of No Return, you can't go back. Are we past the point of no return? Well, uh, in terms of, of local newspapers, small local newspapers around the country surviving as the um, vibrant entities that they once were, yes, I think we're past that point. And the question is, what's next? Um, interesting, you mentioned the New York Times is just beginning an effort uh, led by Dean Baquet, who has recently retired as the top editor of the Times. Um, and they're going to be partnering with local news organizations to do investigative projects. Um, it's a wonderful little um, a hopeful kind of uh, effort, but it won't be the whole solution by any means. What you really need, you know, we have today in this country um, roughly, I'm going to look here for these numbers, um, net after you have the increase in the number of, of new media outlets, we have in this country net 30,000 fewer journalists working today than we did in 2008. Think about that. How many fewer people there are to sit through boring county commission meetings, <laughs> school board meetings, and report to people on very important stuff like uh, um, the boundaries of your school district are going to change. A, uh, a four-lane highway is suddenly coming through your neighborhood. Um, your county commissioner has taken a quote-unquote business trip to the Bahamas and cost you $50,000. Um, uh, these kinds of things are vital to, uh, to communities all across the country. And we just are losing our ability to cover them. Now, we both have a common friend uh, in Bill Winter from the American Press Institute. Yes. And, uh, you have this pile of credentials here. I have a single credential, which is uh, I'm the only person in the history of the American Press Institute who's a non-journalist to receive their Lifetime Achievement Award. And so I did 20 years of work there. And I remember on one occasion, I was talking to a group of about 30 reporters from elite newspapers. And one reporter said to me, you don't understand, he said to me, we're treated like crap. 
we don't have the best equipment. We don't even get reimbursed all the time for expenses. Our salaries are low compared to everyone else. We're beaten mercilessly, he says. If a story's not good, we hear about it. If it's good, the newspaper takes credit. He says, what do you think about that? I said, why don't you leave? He said, are you crazy? I love this job. <laughs> it's believable, right? Yes, totally. But I, I loved every minute of my journalism career, of course. But, but there are so many fewer people like that today, wouldn't you think? Well, it's not because people would love it less. It's that there simply aren't even, he's complaining about maybe not being able to file an expense account or getting credit. But there aren't even newsrooms today where he could sit at a keyboard, a computer keyboard, and report what he had seen. There's no outlet for the work. Uh, and that's the problem. So to what extent would you think, Clark, that this is technology? To what extent is it modern society? To what extent is it economics? Or is this the perfect storm all around? Yes. <laughs> I, I, all of these things contribute. Um, uh, as I mentioned before, newspapers were largely supported, yes, to some degree by subscription income. But the huge bulk of revenue for newspapers came from advertising. And as new media came on stream, uh, advertisers uh, followed their readers to new media. They also went there because with newspapers, you buy a full-page ad, you're a department store, you buy a full-page ad. And let's say the newspaper had 100,000 circulation. Maybe you're going to get 2,000 people who will look at that ad and act on it. Um, from the advertiser's point of view, that was highly inefficient. Uh, and when they're online, they know exactly who it's on their ad, uh, and they can target things much more precisely. Um, so um, I don't think we're ever going back to the to the days before. Uh, but the loss of that the, the loss of that business model for for newspapers was uh, essentially catastrophic. It also coincides with, and who knows, uh, cause and effect. It, co it coincides with a society that I believe is much more highly polarized than we used to be. Uh, a lot of things have gone into that. Um, uh, the, the internationalization of our economy, the loss of, uh, of uh, uh, high-paying manufacturing jobs, um, the, concept, the, the wide disparity now between urban centers and rural centers of, of our country. Lots of things have gone into to, uh, what we're living with today. Well, let me choose one thing here in particular. Uh, it seems to me, as I've grown, uh, there's been an increasing blur among editorial and opinion and advertising. Uh, in my youth, in my 20s, when I was first married, I'd get the New York Times, uh, lived around New York on a Saturday night, and I'd spend Sunday morning a couple hours with it, you know, educating myself about the world. Today, it's delivered to my door, and I might spend 40 minutes with the Times, because even the weather and sports are politically oriented. I mean, they just can't keep their opinion out of the columns. And uh, I find that uh, the increasing tendency of newspapers to back a political side, no matter which side it is, unabashedly. Uh, without even trying to be objective, really undermines credibility. Now, am I overreacting to this? I don't share your 
a perception of it, uh, and I'm perfectly ready to acknowledge that maybe that's a failing on my part. Um, I don't see the Times as hugely, um, in its news columns, uh, hugely opinionated. I do think, though, that um, think about where where it lives and think about the overall world in which those who produce it live. They're not going to be spending time uh, giving equal weight to people who would say, for example, that climate change doesn't exist. They're past that. And, and people who want to deny climate change will therefore say they're hopelessly biased. Um, we now have a situation where they and other, um, one of a better term, mainstream news media have been uh, under attack for at least uh, the last six years by the president and former president of the United States who refers to uh, news media as the enemy of the people. Um, and that exacerbates this sense um, that, that the media are hopelessly biased. I, I don't believe that's the case, but then when you have one side that's, that's truly either saying things that are absolutely false, such as the election in 2020 was stolen, um, and uh, another side that is saying, no, it wasn't, you can't give e equal weight to that when there is no evidence to support one side. I agree with that, but you can give, you can give credence to both sides when you're talking about moral issues that aren't decided by science or some superior law. So, for example, on matters of abortion or immigration, uh, it seems to me that there are intelligent, uh, well-meaning people on both sides of those issues. And to take a side on one versus the other as being superior, I don't think is is um, contributing to the quality of the news. I think it's contributing to the quality of polarization, actually. And I'm more concerned about issues like that rather than denying science. And I, I think I think the, the media are, are failing that way on both sides. I, left and right, I think they're failing that way. Uh, what, what's your opinion about... Um, I'm curious, Alan. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I want to ask you a question. Sure. What would you think would be the proper, um, and, and I'm really asking this uh, with an open mind, what is the middle ground, for example, on the issue of abortion? I think the middle ground is to have a discussion from people who believe that a woman has a right uh, to control her own body under any circumstances. Uh, those who believe, women and men, who believe that abortion is fine up to a certain point, but not beyond. And those who believe that abortion, except in rare circumstances, um, is, uh, is should be illegal, uh, is murder. Uh, I think that a healthy debate uh, in a legitimate media source might help people understand each other. Instead of taking a position that, well, how can you think that way? It has to be this way. I, I would say, uh, in my own experience in reading news uh, uh, coverage of this, as opposed to editorial or columns, is that essentially that argument is being held. I, I, I don't see that in the newspapers. I, let me give you a, a slightly flippant example, just to take it off the gravity of that situation. Sure. We, had a, we had a mayor up here, Buddy Sienzi. He was a real character. He ran Providence, Buddy. And the Providence Journal hated him, absolutely despised, no matter what he did. And, and Buddy Sianci said one day, 
If I walked across the surface of the Providence River tomorrow, the Providence Journal would report that the mayor can't swim. And I think it's it's that kind of subtlety in a headline, in a lead, uh, in a commentary, uh, even in a news article, that that uh, tends to take a position. Uh, and, and I think the positions are all too obvious these days. And I just don't think, you know, you read the Sunday magazine in the New York Times and it's unforgiving. You're, you're with us or you're against us. And it's not just the Times. I'm picking that up because it's been one of my favorite newspapers forever. I, I used to, you know, it was the newspaper of record as far as I was concerned. I don't know what's going to happen to the Washington Post under Jeff Bezos. I mean, maybe you can give me some insight on that. I would love to know. But uh, uh, if we if we look at the newspaper, well, let's look at the news. I mean, is the newspaper going to be a viable part of any kind of objective news dissemination in the country in the future, anywhere akin to where they used to be? Well, the, the newspaper as a... Uh, uh, an object dropped on your front porch or at the foot of your driveway every day. <clears throat> Excuse me. No, I don't. I I think that that we are heading toward a time where um, um, there will be papers. I I presume ink on paper for a long, long time. But as a major part of our society, no. And you know, it's interesting. You and I are talking about this on the level of the New York Times. What I'm really worried is about is on the level of. Uh, uh, counties in my home state now of Virginia that have no news outlet whatsoever to cover the local uh, happenings. That's where I think we're in deep trouble as a society. Um, people can, uh, you know, the national conversation, you're absolutely right, it's highly polarized. And and uh, uh, sides are, are giving no quarter to each other. Uh, but at the local level, I really think when people want to talk about um, I don't know, mun municipal garbage collection or water rates or or uh, school board uh, school bond issues, those are things that are terribly important to the day to day life of people, and there's no way for them to learn about them or actively participate in decision making about them, and that's a deep deep problem for our society. It's interesting you say that because where I live here in Rhode Island, we have a weekly local newspaper and you learn who made Eagle Scout and who's running for school, board, exactly what you're talking about. And so um, that's being done here for a long time. And so I guess I'm a little spoiled by that. But what you're pointing out, if you have no access to that at all, is, is certainly very serious. Uh, all the you come from an age, your credentials are such where you put in a lot of work investigating things. And you made sure of your facts and you made you interviewed people and so forth and so on. And these resulted in often lengthy articles that were totally comprehensive in their approach to the subject. But today you have people whose whose um, attention span is limited to 90 seconds at a time. Uh, I read an, uh, a piece of statistic the other day. That, Thank you, Twitter. <laughs> so, so in 2012, people had a, a 12 point, a 12.2 second attention span. Today they have a 9.2 second attention span. So can you get print news in front of people like that? Or does it have to be oral or does it have to be, you know, by video? What, what does that mean exactly? Yes, I think you can get print news in front of people and, and they will read it uh, on computer screens or on their phone screens instead of on paper. Uh, but um, I don't know the answer to the declining attention span. Um, uh, I do think 
that if you put in front of someone something that is captivating and in interesting, they will read it. You know, it's interesting, um, even as newspapers are disappearing, you realize that book sales of, of ink on paper going through the roof. Yeah. People are reading books like never before. That's right. Even very fat, thick books of 500 pages or more. They're reading. They predicted that ebooks would replace hard copy. They haven't. Right. And last year in America, in 2021, uh, only about 14% of books were ebooks. And the only books to decline slightly by a percent were ebooks. Hard copy books went up. You're exactly right. That is an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, do you think that? Um, I know the New York Times at one point had a very large regional uh, newspaper net. They called them the small newspaper something something. I dealt with the president of the Times small newspaper division. Uh, and these were in smaller uh, cities throughout the country. I, I thought it was a really intelligent thing to do uh, to bring that kind of expertise to those markets. Is there a chance that that can happen again, you know, with the Wall Street Journal or USA Today or the New York Times or the Washington Post have interest in, in setting up some kind of community weekly or monthly sources, do you think? Well, I mentioned that effort that Dean Baquet is heading up. Uh, by and large, no, I don't think that's the case. For example, uh, Gannett, um, which is the uh, owning company of USA Today, is um, uh, cutting back jobs in all the newspapers they own. Um, the, the, the companies that are buying newspapers are not the New York Times or Washington Post. It's uh, outfits like Alden Global Capital, mm. um, which is uh, widely uh, seen by by journalists as something called a vulture fund. Right. Uh, they come in, they buy they buy newspapers for uh, um, uh, bargain basement prices, and then they basically strip them of staff. They sell all the real estate. Um, they and they just uh, you know. Take them down to the point where there's not much there at all. Uh, the Providence Journal is owned by somebody else, and uh, right now the Providence Journal has removed its editorial pages, except for one day a week. They have three or four pages of large obituaries because they charge a lot of money for the obituaries with pictures and so forth. They use mostly wire service reporting for other things, uh, and it's a shell of what it used to be. This used to be a Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper. And I don't think it's an exception that way. I think it's it's uh, pretty common. Uh, on the other hand, I used to work for the uh, Cape Cod Times, uh, which was a very vibrant little newspaper. Uh, I don't know where they are today, but at, at the time they were very important, and they had a big staff, and they were a, a very uh, a, a very a fun place to work. You know, they were excited about things. So uh, I don't know that you can ever restore that enthusiasm again, given where the world is today. And and I'm an optimist. And I'm a, I'm a newspaper aficionado, but um, it, it just seems like this perfect storm I talked about uh, has maybe moved us to a point where it's not so much newspapers we're talking about anymore, but news in general. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think, again, um, you know, we're talking about cable. Tel you know, when I don't know about when you grew up, but when I grew up, there were three television networks. Yeah. Um, ABC, CBS, NBC. That was it. There was no cable television. There were there were no cable news networks or cable opinion outlets. There was no uh, internet. 
Um, and there were print newspapers and like the Providence Journal or like where I grew up, the Miami Herald, um, a place I later worked for, um, that were wonderful, regional, major, important sources of news. And Walter Cronkite was, quote unquote, the most trusted man in America. Mm-hmm. And millions of people tuned in to get their take on the day's events, their report from that man. Uh, we have nothing like that today. Um, newspapers, as they decline, are still in the mix, but you, and radio and, and local television news is there. Of course, local television news doesn't do any of the things we're talking about. It doesn't really seriously cover county commissions and daily, you know, it's whatever looks good on the screen, fires, uh, police tape at a shooting scene, uh, weather. Um, so that's not a long-term answer for building community. And the online world is so fragmented that people go, uh, it's part of human nature, you go where your prejudices and your preconceived opinions are confirmed. So um, you go to Fox News or you go to MSNBC or, um, and, and you don't get exposed to a broad range of facts and opinions. And then, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm giving away a prejudice I have here. I think Fox News is, is particularly um, egregious in, in um, portraying or, or conveying things that are simply not true and not factual. Yeah, they've, they've made, have they made an effort to try to change that lately, or is that just lip service that they're doing it? I, I haven't seen it, but they've, they've been taken to task and to court more than once. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Cronkite, they say, could have been elected president. And uh, Yeah. You're right. And I used to remember Huntley and Brinkley and, you know, good night, Chet, good night, David. And, but you trusted these people. You're exactly right. Today, the Internet uh, is a huge field of confirmation bias. Uh, and you simply read and believe the people who support your cause. And that's that's the excellent case you're bringing up. So uh, in the in the few minutes we have left, uh, maybe you can uh, give me just a couple of predictions about what you think is probably going to happen. That, um, and what would most, you know, this this uh, Alan Roten here, he thinks the newspaper is the vaccine for what we're going through. What do you think can happen that will restore some faith uh, among people in the news and and drive them back to trying to find uh, objective and legitimate sources of news and not just the confirmation bias? That's a very tough question, and I wish I had some very clear, simple answers. I think that trying to invigorate local news and get people back, at least at that level, into a community with shared facts is a way to start building something that can rise higher. Um, uh, I'm worried that our uh, our national political landscape right now is so um, uh, heated and and divided. I, I'm just not sure what can can leak the breach. Um, uh, and I think it's a long term serious societal problem for us. Well, I'm sorry. I wish I had a a quick you know, Alan. Here's here's the answer. Uh, and I don't right now. Clark, I can't tell you how much trust I put in someone who says, I'm not sure, I don't know. It's refreshing to hear. Uh, so it gives me food for thought. And I, I want to thank you for giving the audience food for thought. 
I, I don't every day get to meet people with your, your history and your credentials and your view of things. And it's always an education for me. So thanks for taking the time. I deeply appreciate it and I wish you well. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Uncomfortable Truth with Alan Weiss. For free access to Alan's newsletters, audio and video resources, and for information about his global events and coaching communities, please visit alanweiss.com. Thanks for listening. Keep the faith.